Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. This is our third series of our Chief Editor Kevin Turner's Top 10 Lists. And of course, back in the archive, you're very welcome to look back at our previous two series. And uh, once again, we're looking at, uh, at Formula One. That's not to say, though, that future series right, might not be based entirely around Formula One. We're, that's open. We might might do something else later this year. Uh, I mean, my lists aren't constricted to uh, restricted to F1, but yeah, no. there is a, a fairly major endurance race in France, which... Might be celebrating in 100 years in 2023. Might have quite a couple of big names coming back. So on the basis that I'm a normal sports car fan, we might do some Le Mans top 10. In fact, I do think that we've done a couple before with our guest for today. So I'm going to have to come up with a couple of other ones. That's a shame, isn't it? A couple of different top tens for Le Mans cars. Our second guest on the podcast, and he's been on the previous three uh, weekend podcasts we've been doing about our top tens, is motorsport journalist Damien Smith. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Looking forward to sports car racing in 2023. Oh, yes. Yes, very excited about that. Um, I think uh, a lot of us have been waiting for the good times to come back in sports cars. And we've had, you know, we had a great LMP1 era when you had Audi, Porsche and Toyota, but it didn't last very long. And um, this this feels pretty special. This feels like almost like the 1960s in terms of the quality and the variety. Um, and it feels a bit like Group C as well. Group C, there's an obvious, obvious parallel there. Porsche have named their car 963, for goodness sake. They're selling customer cars as well. That, that was the thing I was going to say, the customer cars. That was yeah. the thing that LMP1 lacked was yeah. you know your Yost I mean obviously they run the Audi team but mm. the equivalent of getting a getting a privateer Audi or Porsche and taking it to the factory and we're gonna we're gonna have that I, I went out to Imola to see the Ferrari 499p being launched and that was actually the most exciting car launch I've I've, I've attended just because it was it was something we've been waiting for you know mm. a new a new Ferrari in the premier class of sports car racing going for the overall win first in 50 years you know it's really um there's a lot to be excited about that was a big event wasn't it that that launch in terms of so much is done virtually these days yeah it was the Ferrari Mondiale World Finals which mm. is an amazing weekend to go to mm. if you're a fan of Ferrari Put it on your calendar and go uh, and do a road trip out there. Because it, this year was Imola. The previous year was Mugello. I've been lucky enough to go the last two. And uh, incredible Formula One cars. Mm. E- every Ferrari Formula One car you could possibly think of from the past was in, in, a, in a big tent. They have displays going around. Um, Fisichella driving them out on the circuit. Uh, sort of Alonso era. Um, loads of GT cars. It's just it's an absolute a wash of red. It's wonderful. Brilliant. I mean, for the Ferrari sports car thing, we've been that's that's a whole generation of fans that have never seen that. Like they, the last time they were at Le Mans, none of us in this room have been born yet. Mm. Yeah, that's how long we've been waiting for for that, and so that's why it was such a yeah such a big deal. It was, just, it was slightly annoying that that weekend clashed with a with the Grand Prix and 
one or two other other <laughs> things, which made that Monday rather rather testing. But yeah, I mean, it's great to great to see it out there and Porsche back and you know Cadillac are come in and uh, BMW. It's going to be it's going to be pretty pretty mega. So yes, I will be doing some top ten Le Mans lists. I just need to check what I've done before and what still needs to be done. I expect we'll rope in our man Gary Watkins at some point. Uh, onto the podcast always a reluctant participant because people he doesn't he thinks people don't want to listen to his opinion on stuff and i'm like you are the one person i want to hear talk about you know such insight and knowledge and he's yeah. spoken to he's not just spoken to the team managers and the drivers he's usually spoken to the guy that dropped the wheel nut that cost the race victory at monza or whenever you know the guy that cut down the tree at what you know he's he finds the most <laughs> brilliant stories even from races that you think you know and you've read plenty of accounts of he'll go out of his way to find something so i always look forward to uh, when gary's uh, copy arrives in my inbox about 30 seconds before deadline <laughs> yeah i love getting him on the podcast we will certainly do more of that this year as well let's get into another one of your top 10 lists what are you treating us to this week so this is top 10 wet weather f1 drives uh, I could do at the end, I could do a bonus of the greatest wet weather drive of all time, which isn't an F1 race, if you like. Do okay. that as a bonus. We'll do that as a bonus. Start and finish with sports cars. Keep listening at the end. Uh, um, but so, yeah, so this is, well, what it sounds really. This is the most outstanding, brilliant, uh, memorable, legendary drives in the wet in F1. Um, I don't know when we're next C1, because obviously F1 is currently grappling with how to deal with the rain and visibility off the enormous rear tyres they've got. Um, and obviously the ground effects they throw they throw a lot of water into the air so it's not really a, a grip thing it's a it's a visibility thing so they wait so long for the visibility to improve it kind of almost stops being a wet race so it might be a while before we see one I think Max Verstappen's going to be due a, a mega wet race win at some point to get onto this list but ah, yeah you've made not- that point before actually because this isn't wet weather driver's ability this is a wet weather drive a drive in the wet Singular, uh, yes. Singular. And no driver appears more than once. So I've picked there. So there are certain drivers I'll get drive. to in the top half of the list yep. who have got several candidates, but I've just picked one. Otherwise, you you know, you know, talk about the same three or four drivers. So we're, we're going we're gonna to just pick one per driver. Damien, do you subscribe to the theory that you can't really be a great Formula One driver till you've had that moment in the wet? Yeah, I think it is a sort of a rites of passage um, for Formula One drivers, I, I do disagree with not having more than one driver. You know, two suit, two Ayrton Senna in the, in the oh, list. Oh, two great drives. Yeah, I don't, I don't get that. But um, that's up, that's up to care, isn't it? Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Well, bit of tension. I, I, bit of tension. No, well, in that case, for a future, we could. Damo, you could, you could do your list and see. Oh, we'll see, or, or as we go along, maybe see which races that that should get. Uh, should get included. Mm. Okay. Um, well, let's kick no, off. I like to, I like to, I like to spread the joy. I know you do. Let's kick <laughs> off. Uh, number 10. Who's on the list? Damon Hill, 1994 Japanese Grand Prix. Great. It's the race that he picked as the race of his life. Yeah. And it's very hard to disagree. And actually, Damon was a pretty good driver in the wet. Everyone remembers that sort of Spanish Grand Prix where he had the spins and whatever. But actually, before that, he'd done brilliant drive in Brazil. He'd been brilliant, at, you know, he was brilliant at Monaco in 96. Obviously, he won the Belgian Grand Prix in 98 in the wet. He was, he was good in the wet. But I think that the reason that this is here is there's two reasons. One, it's a straight head-to-head with Mark Schumacher, who generally you would put Schumacher ahead of Damon, both in the all-time list and in the wet weather stakes. You know, Schumacher's got a lot of wet weather wins to his to his name. And second was the... Uh, the fact that it was, you know, the championship showdown was coming. He needed to needed to win the race, really. Um, and as a last little aside, when he came in for his one stop, he was one of these races on aggregate. So Damon had chased Markle early on. Then there'd been some crashes. They'd done it again. Schumacher was uh, actually on a two stop. So Damon took the lead. But it was an aggregate race, which actually I think they should still do. I don't understand this. Oh, everything that went before doesn't count for anything except the grid for the restart. And that's rubbish. So you have this, it's a bit confusing. You have to kind of pay attention. So at one stage in the race, Schumacher was coming back at Damon and was behind him on the road, but had overtaken him on uh, on aggregate, but then had to come in again. So you set up this brilliant situation where Damon's out front, having made his pit stop and one of his rear tyres, they couldn't change. So he was on the same, I think it was left rear as he'd started on. The team hadn't told him. Oh, yeah, yeah, we won't tell him, that's fine. Uh, don't want to give him anything more to worry about. And Schumacher was coming back, back at him and, and Damon upped his game and uh, and did did enough to hold Schumacher off an aggregate and take the championship finale, you know, take the championship fight to the Adelaide finale, which didn't go quite so well. No, no. But um, Patrick Head always says Damon 
Suzuka 94. That was special. He really stepped up, and and uh, it takes a lot to impress Patrick, as we know. And that was that was he was genuinely blown away by him. And in, in, interestingly, Pat Simmons has told me that. Um, it was a strange race from a Schumacher point of view that he didn't couldn't quite get it into Schumacher's head that he, he had this gap that he had to chase down, even though Damon was a was ahead of him on the road. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, and and he said uh, Michael was always really sharp. He was famous for being really sharp in a racing situation. That day, for some reason, he said he just didn't he didn't quite get it, couldn't get it over yeah. to him. And and um, yeah, and he again he pays due to to Damon for that drive and says that was a, a top a top drive and it's that thing about when you have to step up when you're when opportunity knocks you know this is your time Damon Hill more than stood up at that on that oh, occasion it I think fantastic he did drive. consistently I think Damon was mentally very strong if you look yeah. at how he picked Williams up after Senna was killed and got back in the car as well at Imola the way he stood up in those championships you know it wasn't him that cracked at Adelaide um, uh, and then well, know, he put all the pressure on Michael in Adelaide and um, Michael cracked, didn't he? He made yeah, that mistake. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, he finished the year really strongly. D- Damon actually says the first part of Adelaide felt like a continuation of Suzuka in terms of the level that he'd got to. It was the right rear, by the way, that they managed not to change. Um, but, yeah, he said that following Schumacher in the early stages, he said, oh, my God, he's about to go off. Oh, he saved it. Oh, my God, he's about to go off. And this all dawned on him. No, he's just, he's just on that knife edge all the time. Um, but on that day, he was able to stay with him and then as as Damien said when the when it really came to it um actually on the last lap he he actually extended the lead slightly um so yeah uh, a, a a very very good driver beating a great driver when it really mattered it's an interesting rivalry because um um i think it's true that michael didn't have the respect for damon that damon had for michael uh, and that that was definitely the case through '95, which was obviously a very difficult year for Damon with mistakes and in a quick Williams struggling against um, Schumacher with a Renault-powered Benetton. Mm-hmm. Um, you know um, the momentum that he carried from '94, from that end of '94, that that amazing Suzuka win we're talking about, and in Adelaide should have continued into '95, and, and he kind of lost his way, and that that was kind of why he lost his drive. In his championship year, the end of his championship year was because of 95, you know, that was the real reason. But, um, you know, on those occasions in 94, when the pressure was on, he stepped up, um, just like his old man in 68, wasn't it? It was uh, very much like that. Yeah, the parallel's quite uncanny, really, isn't it? Okay. All right, let's move on. Who's at nine? So nine is Keke Rosberg, 1983 Monaco Grand Prix. I find it quite funny that I think one of Keke's great strengths was improvisation, which I would say was one of Nico's weaknesses. Um even though they both won at Monaco, of course. So so this was really... So we're into 83. The Cosworth DFV has kind of had its day, really. Turbos are here to stay, and uh, well, until they were banned for the first time. Uh, and really, it was only street tracks that they were going to have a, a chance at. Um, and Rosberg started fifth, but it was one of those races that was sort of wet, but it was probably going to dry. What were you going to start on? Uh, and Rosberg started on slicks. Uh, and I think um, I think Nigel Robot says in the report, you know, how, how far would he fall on the first few laps? Well, actually, he <laughs> he, uh, he charged through the field instead. Uh, so even on the first lap, um, so he was into second by Santavot, uh, and he, he overtook Prost on lap two. And at the end of that lap, he was 1.7 seconds ahead of Prost, who was 9.2 seconds ahead of the next best so i mean prost could be the could be the driver that we would have to discuss about the wet weather rights of passage thing but that's just perhaps a separate podcast but and he just disappeared down the road and of course everyone had to go in and change to uh change to slick so his lead got bigger jacques lafitte's teammate was the only other guy that had done the same thing but he was still uh well behind rosberg when um when lafitte uh dropped out of the race uh uh, but then he had a <laughs> he had still had some things to overcome because he was he was ill he'd had a virus infection uh, his hands were were blistered because of the the steering wheel because uh, obviously in those days the cars didn't weren't quite so well tailored and power steering as they are now um, and uh, but he uh, and I think he um, had an engine cutting out as well so he had a lot to deal with this is round Monaco uh, and held held on to win so. It's kind of perhaps a rain-affected race rather than the classic wet weather, kind of it's torrential the whole time. Yeah. As you say, improvisation, that's what it's all about, thinking on his feet. And um, also early in that season when the big regulation change had come in, um, when they'd, they'd gone to um, to flat bottoms and the FIA had dropped that bombshell the previous winter 
and the teams had come up with uh, cut and shut jobs basically on, the, on most of the, most of them, apart from Gordon Murray came up with them the amazing BT52 of course but but that Williams I always loved that Williams uh, the it's short compact, short side pod yeah really and it's a, it's a um, sort of archetypal uh, late era DFE car really um, and he made the most of it that day very few occasions that year he had a chance to to beat the turbos and, and he, he absolutely took his, his opportunity that day he's great to watch in 82 and 83 as well <coughs> if you look at some of the old footage he's just, the body language of Rosberg in the races he's always you feel like he's squeezing every last ounce of performance out of it he's late on the brakes he's throwing and he's doing everything he can to keep up with the turbos or get around them and I know he only won one race in his world championship winning year, but I'm, I'm sort of quite pleased he was a world champion. And, and when you think about Rosberg in the rain, you've got to mention 78 International Trophy as well, which was um, one of the wettest races ever, even for Silverstone standards. Um, and everyone's skidding off, um, including Mario in the, in the Lotus and um, and Keke, who was barely known at the time, winning on a in a Theodore. Theodore, yeah. Um, and that was kind of put himself on the map that day. Um, and um, yeah, so he's got more than one rites of passage wet weather race, I'd say. Yeah, that's true, and actually, just that's probably worth clarifying. This is World Championship races, but you, if you were including, I mean, if you're including non-championship run races, you'd probably have to bring in Jackie X's win at Brands Hatch in 1974, which is which is his last big good F1 drive, I think, probably. Yeah. Well, the, the non-championship British races, the, the the race of champions at Brands and International Trophy, they were early in the year, so they were the chances of a wet race were quite yeah. high. Or snow on a snow, campaign. yes, <laughs> hypothermia. Top ten snow uh, F1 races. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's make a little more up to date now. Well, who's next? Number eight, Sebastian Vettel, 2008 Italian Grand Prix, and I think it's probably Vettel's best win of his 53, and it was his first one. Mm. Um, and I think you know it's a Toro Rosso. I was, this was the feel good factor as well at the time. So th- remember, at this stage, he's you know he's up and coming on German talent. Toro Rosso, which was obviously the old Minardi team, never won a race, uh, and it just um, you know. I think Autosport's headline was introducing a new F1 star, and that was absolutely correct. You know, he nailed qualifying. I think the car was was good in those conditions. It was malleable, but he drove it with such confidence and panache. And I think there was an assumption that in the race, uh, yeah, Vettel wouldn't, you yeah, know, wouldn't hold on. But he he had everyone covered. The o- the only one that I think could have challenged him, perhaps predictably, given what happened over the next ten years, was Lewis Hamilton starting way back. Um, but it basically rested on on a tyre change and how the conditions went, and they went the way that that Vettel needed, and so you know, Lewis Lewis had to pit again. And, uh, it was all over really. So it was a very well taken victory. He was out of the blue, um, and it was it's kind of a, I guess a a warning shot for everyone that this guy was going to be yeah someone to be reckoned with. Slightly left field analogy, but um, I always think a little bit of Elvis Presley. When I think of this win, it's like Elvis in '56 and Sun Records. Elvis, when he was when he was cool, mm. he was sharp. He was wiggling his hips, um, and the songs were absolutely mint, pin sharp. Mm. Great, great rock and roll records. To um, late era Elvis, when he was overweight and he was in Las Vegas and he was wearing stupid jumpsuits and he was nowhere near what he used to be. And Vettel, late era Vettel, I think. You know, he almost lost. For me, he lost. He lost the spirit of what was Sebastian Vettel. He lost. He lost his his mojo completely. I think during the latter Ferrari years, Aston Martin, we saw little moments of the old Vettel come back, which was lovely to see, especially in that last season. Um, and when he was released almost from his F1 career, once he'd announced it, it seemed he, you know we we almost got an insight of Elvis '56 again. You know, and it was it was um, and that's 2008 Vettel. Yeah, you know, he was just awesome, and he was young, and he was fresh, and he was hungry, and he was it was just everything that was great about a new young driver bursting through in a Minardi. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. I would, I would yeah. say that I, I'm just to back that point up. I, I'm l- glad that Vettel did this few years at Aston Martin because if he'd left F1 after that 2020 season at Ferrari, yeah, it'd been quite sad, wouldn't it? Where he'd been blown away by Leclerc, and the car was terrible. Yeah. That would have been rubbish, but the, but actually had a li- he had some performances at Aston Martin that made you think, oh yeah, there's there he is. <laughs> the glimmers are still there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think so. I think he retired on his own terms in a much better way, yeah, in 2022 than he would have done at the end of 2020. Yeah, there's a top ten in 
how drivers leave Formula One. So I'm slightly obsessed with how drivers, pretty world champions. Well, you could do a best and worst, couldn't you? Best and worst best ways, ways to leave to, the sport. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the same. I'm always really in, interested in how they leave. It's the biggest decision a sports person ever takes is when to quit. Yeah. Whatever the sport is, and they've dedicated their whole lives to it, and they get to this point in their lives when it's it's time it's time to go because either they've they know they're at the peak or they've gone on too long and it's it's timing it right and you know for me Jackie Stewart got it right he always he nailed it in 73 I was just going to say that would probably be my number one he's, choice he's but an example too, too <laughs> much away yeah. um, that's why I think Lewis should try and win an eighth world title and then go Absolutely. right right over to you Stop. chaps just take one more to, uh, off the young guns and then let 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 Max, yeah. George Lando and Charles go at it for the next 10 years. But We're going yeah, horribly no. off the point here, but I would say Lewis is too good to stop now. Yes. He has to carry on for a bit longer. And I, I agree with you completely. He should go for that eighth. Whether he gets it or not, doesn't really matter. Just have a go for it. But nothing more heartbreaking than seeing someone who shouldn't be racing anymore. And, he, and he's nowhere near that. But no. I find there's nothing more sad than a former world champion. So race winners is one thing. World champions another. When you go like, everyone can see it. You've got to stop. Well, Vettel reminds me of Graham Hill to an extent and, and Graham Hill went on way too long yeah. into the mid 70s and um, you know he couldn't give it up because he loved it and Vettel to be fair is, is the same same thing except Vettel's only he's only 35 he was so young mm. I don't think he fell away in his later years quite to the degree that Graham Hill did to be fair to Seb mm. uh, but I thought you were setting me up for an I don't incredible know. I don't know moments yeah I would say uh, there was there were times when he was you know, and some of those Ferrari performances were pretty dire. It's relatively speaking. It you know, is, yeah. He was still in a yeah. Ferrari, so that's true. Whereas Graham had some perhaps less than wonderful equipment as yeah. well towards yeah. the end of his career. Should we do the incredible segue to number seven? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ways to not finish a career. <laughs> Graham Hill, there we go. 1962 German Grand Prix. You see, that's what I thought you were setting me up for. Well, I'll take it. I'll so pretend it. I'll pretend it was intentional. Also, at the other end of his career, we should probably look at how many of these are early on in people's careers because maybe there's a bit of uh, the, the risk assessment changes over time, maybe, uh, and, then, and then you get you these be- best wet weather drives early on in the early on in careers. Perhaps I have to check that, but uh, yeah. So this is actually, I think this is a bit of a, uh, an underrated gem. I think the first of all, it's at the Nurburgring. It's on the Nordschleife, so it's mm. it's a proper track. Doesn't get any more proper. Yep. Hill has an enormous accident in practice uh, when a camera comes off uh, De Beaufort's Porsche and smashes into him. Uh, there's an oil, I think it breaks, the, does an oil line or the oil tank, and he spins off in his own oil at about 140, writes the car off, dusts himself out from whichever hedge that he's disappeared through. <laughs> BRM had happened to have taken a, that was a, virtually a new P, uh, P57 as well, but they dusted off the older car that they happened to have as a spare. They kind of cobbled it together as best they could. Um, he followed Dan Gurney early in the race, overtook him uh, going onto the third lap, to absolute silence, apparently. I was fortunate enough to speak to uh, Dick Salmon, who was BRM mechanic, who remembers that race very well and says that there was a cheer at the end of the first lap as Gurney came through in the lead and then silence as he lost the lead the following lap, which uh, <laughs> he enjoyed quite a lot, obviously. Yeah. And then he's chased by Dan Gurney and John Surtees for the entire length of the race. There's never more than a few seconds between them. Um and actually, I think Surtees, I remember speaking to John about this, uh, and he reckons he could have got Graham on the last lap. He'd sort of got him all lined up, went for his move, and then found traffic in the way and had to back out of it, and that was enough for Graham to uh, you know, to, to get the win. But he'd held them off for the entire distance in horrible conditions. I think there'd been a landslide earlier in the day, so they delayed the start. So that gives you an idea of how bad the conditions were. Um, and he'd, so he'd held off two of the best drivers in the world throughout um, and he regarded it as, in terms of, he, Graham Hill was very good at talking about concentration. He said, try and concentrate on something, anything, whatever it is, for two hours intensely. It's really hard to do. And he did that, and he regarded that as one of his best days. And by the way, I think it was also one of Jim Clark's best days because he forgot to switch on his fuel pumps at the start and charge back through to fourth. So it's it's just a great race, and he's the winner of it. A uh, good choice, Kev, a really good choice because it is a bit overlooked. And having said that Graham Hill went on too long uh, in the 70s, I mean, there were days in the 60s when he was, he was, you know, well, he, um, he could beat anyone when, when, and that was a fantastic performance and deserves uh, to be on this list, absolutely. And um, that BRM versus Lotus year, start of a, a whole new era, really. 
It was actually, and, and, and Dick was saying how actually they sort of got on and used to go out together and whatever. And of course, the teams were much smaller then as well. But they, you know, he said, you know, what, I said, well, what changed? Because obviously, BRM had been a bit, uh, you know, troubled. And he'd been there since the end of 1950, so he'd lived through all the V16 and the P25 setting itself on fire and all the rest of it. He said, well, yeah, the, the engine was good. Uh, the chassis was good and Graham was mega. Yeah, he was just a, a brilliant driver that, that did the job for us. And you think, well, actually, yeah, that's that's fair enough. When I did his uh, greatest drives, it was basically it was it was it was between this and his '65 Monaco Grand Prix win. Um, uh, you could argue that this is the number one because of the it's the Nurburgring and Clark was in it. I went for Monaco partly because it's Graham Hill and he was Mr. Monaco. So that was that was kind of an emotional part to it, even though Jim Clark wasn't there and he charged back through after being forced down the escape road. But I think it's right up there as one of the great Grand Prix drives. Yeah, and he was one of the great all-rounders, wasn't he? Because he, he uh, like, a little bit like Sterling Moss, he drove loads of cars, loads of different types of cars, and he won in most of them, actually. And um, I know that he has this reputation for not being the, you know, a workman-like driver compared to some of the natural talents around him. But you look at his record, and he was, you know, he, he's right up there. Yeah, know? he absolutely is. Yeah, he could win in, you know, touring cars, GT, sports cars, won the Indy 500. Yeah, and he was past, he was past his best at Le Mans in 72, but he, he nailed the wet, the wet, you know, they were all having to drive to a to a pace in the dry, but when it was wet, they could do what they liked, and, and that's when he nailed it. Pescarola admitted he was not happy about being... Uh, teamed with this past it Grand Prix driver and completely changed his mind during the race and again that was in the wet wasn't it uh, another wet, wet performance so um, you know and, and um, you know he he st- stood up and, 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 um, and won that race properly with Pesca that year One more driver to get halfway and who is in sixth place? So he's already featured in this series yeah. but it's uh, Jean-Pierre Beltoise at the 1972 Monaco Grand Prix um, I don't know whether Damo wants to tell the story this time, yeah. as I did last time. Well, yeah, qualified fourth in a, in a, a BRM, which was uh, unfancied, I think it's fair to say. Um, you know, uh, a team and a, um, a completely out of its time by by this time. We just talked about BRM in 62, you know, 10 years later. It was a very different story. BRM was on the way down, and um, this was really the last great moment, wasn't it, I think? It was their last win, yeah. yeah well, so, last World Championship win. I think Belsfars won a non-championship race at the end of the year, but yeah. Yeah, and um, uh, a, a good Grand Prix driver put in a performance that was world-class and, and among, I would say, among the greatest performances of anyone on, 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 on a single day, you know. And um, to beat Jackie Ix, who was considered a wet weather master, he led all the way from fourth on the grid, took the lead and just led all the way. And um, you were saying in the previous podcast, uh, Kevin, you know, lapped Fittipaldi, who went on to be champion that year. Yeah, so, and was third, lapped the entire field, yeah. which was the only one who stayed on the same lap. And Incredible. And he was 40 seconds behind. Yeah. What kind of wet race was oh, it? That was a pro- so that's a good question, actually. So... I've done wet. I've been on rain-affected races. I've actually got a list of all rain-affected races in World Championship history, and it's a roughly 150. But some of them are a sprinkling of rain, and some of them are full-on monsoon that you wouldn't run a race in now. So I've graded them. Um, but this would be this. This was full-on wet the whole time. There was no oh, when should we change to slicks? It was, you know, pouring down horrible wet. Yeah. I can't see. Oh, is the race finished yet? That that sort of race. It's Monaco. You you know you, you kind of associate the, the glitz and the glamour and the sun, but there's been so many wet races in that uh, down in the Principality over the years as well. And this this was probably the wettest. Would you say? Yeah, sure. there, the um, a 1936 Monaco Grand Prix that Rudolf Creacciola won, which is one of his great races. He was he was arguably the first wet weather meister. He uh, and that was the year where the Mercedes didn't really have the best car, and he he demolished the field. And that was that was uh, really bad. Like probably that and eighty, that and eighty four were the other contenders for how wet it was in seventy two. Caracciolo is probably the guy that misses out most by restricting it to the World Championship because he, you know, he was the sort of standout wet weather driver prior to the war. When uh, in the fifties and sixties, all sort of started listing wet weather drivers when they're saying, "Oh, Moss has now joined the list." They usually start with Caracciolo as the first established wet weather motorsport driver okay we're halfway we'll take a break and when we come back we'll get into the top five stick around i'm alex rodriguez and i'm jason kelly from bloomberg this is the deal each week you're here in conversation with business icons 
This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Right, welcome back to the podcast. Let's get into the top five of the best wet weather F1 drives. And Kev, who have you put it fifth place? So this is the top five that will presumably infuriate Damo because these are the five drivers that could have multiple entries on this list. And you're, just to remind of uh, listeners at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned you've shared the love. So one wet Share drive. Share the love, that's right. So and, and, any, and you can make a case for any one of these five drivers being the greatest racing drivers of all time. Okay, so they're wow. In, they're in the debate. What a Where they up. slot right. is up to you. Yep. But... Um, for this list, it's up to me because I've done it. So in terms of wet weather drives, so number five is Lewis Hamilton's win in the 2008 British Grand Prix. We've been having some quite big debates in the office uh, about where this stands in his list of wins, of his 103 wins. I think I've still got it as number one because of that wet weather right of passage. It's so early on in his career and he won by over a minute. And races just don't get won by that sort of margin anymore and actually haven't for quite a long time generally. Um, so for me, it's outstanding. I think you could also look at um, Turkey in, in 2020. Some of the guys in the office have got very excited about Brazil in 2021, which would be in the list, but I don't think it beats a, I don't think it beats wet weather virtuosity. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, he was actually having a little bit of a tricky time of it, qualifying hadn't gone brilliantly. He surged from, uh, surged from uh, fourth to second, almost touched Hoki Kovalainen and his teammate. Was all over Coverline and Coverline got out of the way after a few laps and and off he disappeared. The only one that looked anywhere near on uh, on Hamilton's level that day was Kimi Raikkonen. He came at him, um, and then uh, the crucial the crucial point was when they when they came in, um, and Ferrari kept Raikkonen on the same set of intermediate tyres, and McLaren gave Hamilton a new set. And as they exited the pits, rain arrived, and the inters were the used inters were no good, and that was goodbye, Kimi. And then Hamilton just headed off on his own. He also did that thing that a lot of great wet weather drivers do, which is when it gets wetter, they just cope with that. And he didn't come in. He stayed out. So although he was a couple of seconds of that slide and those on full wets, he was miles quicker than everyone else who'd stayed on inters. So he kept himself in the ballpark, saved himself two pit stops effectively, going from inters to wets and back again. And that's why he's... he's Martin just ballooned ever bigger to overnight Nick Heidfeld, who finished second in the end. Yeah, it's a landmark, isn't it? Because he'd had that amazing rookie season in 07, you know, beaten Alonso a number of times, fair and square, um, almost became world champion first time out, incredible season. But this, this wet weather win the following year, which was kind of the marker of, okay, so he is something really special. This is potentially one of the greats we're seeing here as a young man developing. Um, and, you know, the maturity he showed that day, the the, the calmness, all those things that we we now take for granted. Mm. It was still very early on. Um, and, um, yeah, I agree, Kev, it's, it's got to be top three of the of the hundred whatever many races he's won now. It's 103. 103. Yeah. It's incredible. You know, it was a great, it was a great day. And, and he's got a good list of wins. Some of Lewis's wins are are properly mega. Like it was easy in a way. It was it was easier to get his ones than with with Vettel's because you know a lot of Vettel's were quite similar. You know, Red Bull break the qualifying pole, break DRS. So obviously they're good, but they're kind of copy and paste. And Hamilton, I guess, with one hundred and three, you're going to have a variety, aren't you? Um, uh, but this one still just pips it for me. And I guess because it was a, a more modern era of Formula One, which our listeners may you know remember that day even, that with so many spins, with so much action, it can sometimes seem like chaos and it can sometimes seem like a freak result. Anyone could win this race. And because there's so many shots to show by the director of incidents and spins and other drivers, 
the focus needs to be on Lewis and how how well he and it wasn't he didn't luck into it. For me, the perfect example of that was Turkey twenty twenty. Now we all know that you know the W eleven Merc is one of the greatest F one cars of all time, and Hamilton I think was probably maybe at his peak then twenty eighteen to twenty. I think it's probably Lewis peak. Uh, and he just nailed race after race after race. But that one could have been won by a number of drivers. And he just, it, it, he, that showed his, his increasing maturity. He was almost a bit sort of Prost-like of just letting the race come to him. Verstappen threw it off, you know, there's all sorts of things happening. And then he just completely disappeared. I think Vettel said, well, once again, he's won a race that he probably shouldn't have won. Um, uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's up there as, as well, I think. There's just a really overall performance of like yeah it's, it's not just the car let's go back a bit who's next on the list so number four is jim clark the 1963 belgian grand prix again clark could have had a couple of entries uh, on this list but this one gets i think partly because of how foul the conditions were at points during this race so they're so but bearing in mind this is 1963 where so jackie stewart hasn't even arrived to sort of try and even suggest that the s word safety is something that should be considered and tony rudd and colin chapman so that's, that's the BRM boss and, and the Lotus boss. They both called at points during this race for it to be stopped. This is 1963. That's how bad it was. And at one point, uh, I think Clark's lap times went up by two minutes. They went up by two minutes. So <laughs> so that that's part of it is because the conditions were just so incredibly awful. The other, uh, the other things are he started eighth and makes, I think, probably one of the greatest F1 starts. This is when the, the run down to from the source to O'Rouge used to be the start. He qualifies eighth and he's in the lead before he even turns into O'Rouge. Now, admittedly, 3-2-3 grid, so it's not quite the same as today. And then, yeah, so Graham Hill hangs on to him uh, for, a, for a little while um, before he retires. Uh, and, then, and then Clark's left left out on his on out on his own at one stage did actually lap Bruce McLaren in second um on a 5 minute lap at this point but then he he backed off towards the end to let uh, to let Bruce by and uh, yeah he 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 won by only 4 minutes and 54 seconds wow yeah it was it was one of those um other level again a landmark for him because it's still quite quite early in the Jim Clark career um you know um he'd been around since 61 but 63 was his first championship year and again it was it was it was a landmark uh early landmark of just how special he was and um yeah and it's hard i mean it's hard to imagine how wet it was that day mm. and how how he uh dominated the, the field and no one else could could live with him incredible wow okay let's get on to the podium then who's next so number three is mark schumacher at the 1996 spanish grand prix yeah. so this is um <laughs> Schumacher has more rain-affected race wins than, than anyone else. Lewis is one behind, so it's one more record he could uh, match or beat before he, uh, before he retires. Um, and it's his first Ferrari win. Obviously, now we think of Schumacher and Ferrari as this dominant force that crushed everyone uh, in, the, in the first half of the 2000s. But when he went there as double world champion, yeah, they'd been pretty hopeless and hadn't looked like championship contenders since, since uh, they'd had Alain Prost in 1990. And the F310 was... Not great. It was their first V10 car, and in the dry, it was it was yeah off the pace, second off the pace. Uh, it'd been bad in the wet into Lagos as well. Uh, even even Schumacher hadn't been able to do anything with it there, uh, and Andy makes a terrible start. He had some sort of clutch issue, so he falls back. And it's very difficult to tell from the footage how far he falls back. So by the end of the first lap, he's already recovered quite a few of the of the places. So you can't quite tell. It's that bad. You can't tell how far he's fallen, but he's, you know, he's, he's back to sixth by the end of that one, and then he just charges through the field, p- passes you on a lacy and established, yeah, another sort of uh, good wet weather driver, uh, Ville, passes Villeneuve, and then disappears down the road at several seconds a lap. He used all sorts of different lines. It really shows the confidence he has. He's really wide around some of the long circumference corners around the Barcelona track. At various points, the V10 turns into a V8 or a V9. Doesn't matter, still leads anyway. Wow. Wins by three quarters of a minute. There are lots of wet weather drives subsequently, mm. and I guess Benetton fans might suggest that Nürburgring 95, which is rain-affected, was, was pretty good as well. Though I think he did the damage in the dry, really. Um, but this one is uh, its the beginning of an era, really, his Ferrari era. Yeah, and it's also in the context that he'd... Um, essentially turned his back on a third world championship, a hat-trick with Benetton. Because if he'd stayed at Benetton in 96, um, anyone who anyone who you talked to at the team, 
they say he'd have won the championship in that car. The 96 Benetton was as good as the 95 car. He would have won the championship in 96 and possibly in 97 as well. Um, and he, you know, he, he was hot stuff in 95 when he was winning that second title. Uh, his contract was up at the end of the year. There was rumours of him going to Mercedes, but McLaren Mercedes, because he had that relationship going back to Group C. There was talk about him going to Williams, and he cheekily said uh, in a press conference, as long as Damon doesn't mind being a number two. Um, you know, there's a lot of angst between them at that time. Uh, and he, he took the Ferrari dollar, 25 million, if it's uh, if it's believed, that's what they, they said. Um, and, uh, but, it was more than that. It was about pulling back this great team into uh, a championship contender and breaking the drought. Uh, and he realised that was his chance to really make his mark, I think. And this was an early sighter of what we what we were going to see from him. But it took it obviously took a long time after this for that to happen, didn't it? You know. But this this was an occasion when the conditions allowed him to show the difference that Michael Schumacher made in that mid nineties era and how much better he was than everyone else. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with all that. I think that's where you really see, and and most of the field don't finish because they've fallen off, <laughs> you know. And he's and he's lapping faster than them and trying wider, more risky lines to find grip. And as and uh, and as I say, with a car that's not really working, I think even the even the Williams engineer at the time were putting the piece that went up online. You know, James Robinson said, "Watching the Friday, I don't think the car was brilliant. <laughs> I think the guy, I think the guy is just something else." Really? So for a rival to say that, you think, yeah, okay. Hands up, we we just got beaten by someone. Did he throw it off at any point and save it, or was it just? No, on rails? I don't think he did in that race. Yeah. And that's the one thing that perhaps, if you were being super harsh about Hamilton's Silverstone 08 race, he does have a little off at the Abbey Chicane. I think. Mm. I mean, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he only won by a minute and eight instead of a minute and eleven or whatever it would have been. So. Um, but no, he. I don't, I don't recall. As I, did, I remember watching that race live, and you yeah. think, "Oh, this is one of those." I th- one every now and again, a race comes, or just a sporting moment. Uh, you know, like when Germany beat Brazil seven-one. As you're watching it, you think that this is going to be one of those moments mm. that gets referred to in the future, and and you could tell that happening. I think at Barcelona in '96. Okay, who's second on your list? So. Second is Ayrton Senna, 1985 Portuguese Grand Prix. Now, I'm sorry for people who were at Donington in 1993 because they did obviously witness an amazing moment and arguably the greatest single lap in a Grand Prix. Uh, although John Watson's got another candidate, which we'll get to at some point. But um, the reason that I picked Portugal instead of Donington, there were a few actually. One was, you've got to remember Senna's inexperience at the time. He's only a season really into his F1 career. You know, he's not the seasoned, mature campaign that he is by 93. I'd say that the lack of traction control and the, the, the turbocharged Lotus was rather more difficult piece of kit than the McLaren he had at Donington in 93. Uh, and the one that I really like is that Senna thought Portugal was better. So who's going to argue with him? Not many people. So those three, three or four factors that will push, push Portugal, uh, Portugal ahead. I think there were probably more competitive cars that could win that day as well. I think outside of the two, the two Williamses, what else was going to win at Donington in '93? Whereas I think there were probably quite a few cars uh, that could have won. Um, but it was another one of these races where he disappears. He actually did. Um, he did wave at one point to try and get the race stopped, which is quite ironic if you think of what happened at Monaco in '84 uh, when he was in the Tolman and Prost did that, and actually Prost aquaplaned off in a straight line. Uh, Consistency and attitude was never one of Senna's strong points. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but yeah, but I would agree with you, Kev. That this one has to go in, and it's ahead of '93, and also because um, it was his first, so he hadn't got into the habit of learning to win. And every racing driver uh, at any level, they have to learn to win, and to do it in those conditions, in that car, in that circumstance, against field you're talking about yeah it was it was another one of those landmark moments when we we knew something special was happening i love that photo i think it i think it's is it a stephen t photo i'm not sure there's a um the black and white one and peter war welcoming back arms raised you know it's just a wonderful uh celebrationary moment when lotus didn't have that many in those days so it was a it was a pretty special special victory for lots of reasons i think yeah, and, and actually just to throw some stats behind it as well, as the, only nine of the 26 starters were classified uh, and uh, Senna lapped everyone except Michele Alberto's Ferrari, uh, which was a minute and three seconds behind. So 
uh, a pathetically small margin compared to Clark's four minutes fifty four. But I think uh, <laughs> different different times <laughs> and so much spray and so such a wet track as well. So let's talk about the number one on your lists. So to defeat Senna and uh, Schumacher on this list, I thought it needed to be. It's gonna it has to be something pretty special. So I thought you know the greatest race circuit in the world. Uh, and the winner being injured and being finished so early, much further than the opposition that they were on the podium by the time the second place car came over the line probably was what did it. Okay. So this is Jackie Stewart, the 1968 German Grand Prix. So it's the greatest racetrack in the world. I think we're probably looking around. Do we agree? Yeah, it's got to be, hasn't it? Um, now he's injured because he's broken a wrist in an F2 accident a few months before. He's got it in a... He showed me the, you seen seen the, the yeah, plastic casting. He had the casting yeah. thing he had made. So he said in the dry, probably wouldn't have been able to win. Um, and uh, there's a great picture that goes with the article, actually, which shows the first moment of genius, which is he, him noticing that the concrete, uh, the concrete surface where the pit lane is has more grip than the asphalt that the grid is. So he gets off the line, moves onto the concrete and drives past everyone <laughs> to go up to th- get up to third place from sixth. Uh, and he then overtakes uh, Chris Amon and Graham Hill and, and disappears down the road. His best lap was 15 seconds faster than the next best lap. And uh, you know, he said that you just you, you could never know how far ahead you were, partly because of the the conditions, but also because it's the, it's the Nurburgring. A gap at the start of that could be completely changed by the by the end. So you just you just kept on pushing. I had no real idea how close anyone was. Graham Hill kind of not kept him in sight, but was say a minute, I think a minute and a quarter behind, and he had a moment, and that meant that Stewart's eventual winning margin was four minutes and three seconds, and I believe that's the race where he was on the podium uh, with his laurel reef as Hill crossed the line, <laughs> which is which is pretty cool. So yes, he had he had done lops. He probably had uh, you know had, he had he was on the right compound of tyre at a time when there was a tyre war, and it did go backwards and forwards between them. But I think given the circuit, the fact that he was injured. Uh, and the and the the winning margin, I just that for me edged it edged it ahead. Yeah, and again, wider context. This is Jackie Stewart, the safety campaigner, who everyone, uh, uh, you know, uh, then and after um, he faced a lot of criticism for the the safety stand he took uh, in that era, um, and yet he was still capable of doing this in those conditions. Um, also, you know, first year with Tyrrell in the Matra, um, so he. Basically turned down the chance to go to Ferrari, which most you know doesn't happen to most most people. Don't turn down Ferrari, and he'd chosen Ken Tyrrell, who hadn't run a Formula One team, uh, went for a Matra, and you know this is this is another landmark kind of performance for for a, a partnership as much as for Jackie Stewart. I think it it said a lot about um, he'd chosen right, and it was uh, you know going to define an era. Well, that's our list, but we won't go yet. There's a bonus wet weather drive. You remember the bonus? I wasn't sure whether you remember the bonus. Oh, of course. I'm looking forward to hearing this. Uh, I think the greatest wet weather drive in history didn't happen in Formula One. Damien, you can probably guess which one I'm I'm referring to. Pedro Rodriguez and Brands Hatch. Yeah, 1970 yeah. at Brands Hatch. Yeah, saying the Porsche 917. Obviously, I'm biased because I'm going to mention that car whenever I get the opportunity. <laughs> uh, but at this point, it's early on in the 1970 season, actually. And at that point, it's one all between Ferrari and Porsche, and Ferrari out-qualified Porsche in the dry. So it, at, at the, with hindsight, we go, well, the 917 is the better car. But at that point, it hadn't yet, wasn't that obvious. <laughs> Pedro overtook early on under the yellow flags, which he claimed and probably couldn't see because of the spray, got called in, got a rollicking from... Oh, it was Nick Sirrett, wasn't it? I think. It was Nick, yeah. Have you, have you spoke, did you speak to Nick I did speak that? to him about it, yeah. yeah. And he well, said he came in and opened the door and he basically gave Pedro a complete rollicking. Pedro didn't look at him, just stared straight ahead out through the window, didn't acknowledge him, <laughs> put the door down, off he went. <laughs> so he was, a, he was a lap behind at that point and he then proceeded to overtake uh, uh, people of the quality of Joseph, his teammate, who was, you know, they were supposed to be rivals, uh, Vic Elford in the Paul Salzburg uh, 917, the Ferraris, uh, I think... Um, I think the X car did have a, a problem, but otherwise he was he was going past everyone at seconds a lap. He let his co-driver Leo Kinnanen in the car for whatever the minimum was at the time. And I think Kinnanen managed to have a spin during his twenty minutes in the car. And Pedro was uh, asked John Wire, who was the team manager 
I imagine quite enthusiastically if you could get back in the car. And he did. So he did a vast majority of the six-hour, 45-minute race. And from a lap down, he won by five laps against a quality field in an, in a car that had a fearsome reputation. It's fair to say he was on one. On one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Rodriguez is one of the great wet-weather drivers. He actually has a few great uh, wet-weather drivers. But this is just so remarkable, so memorable. You know, I think the Chris Amon quote, uh, I think he said to Nigel Robot was, you know, that joke about why doesn't someone tell Pedro it's raining? It wasn't bloody funny that day uh, because of the rate that he came past people at Paddock, you know. And, and it's when you watch footage of it, some footage of it exists. It's great, actually. It's dancing. The car is just dancing, drifting around the corners. Yeah. And it's just, it's just fantastic to there's, watch. There's something about wet races, as a fan as well. I remember I've got memories as a kid going to races and, and the really wet ones because you remember just how muddy it was and how, how awful it was. I, remember, I was at 83... Uh, thousand k's at brands when uh, Derek Warwick and John Fitzpatrick won and I was only a little kid I don't remember much about it other than just how wet it was and my yellow wellies just in the in the brands red mud and how how muddy it was and how grim it was but I was I was really pleased to see them win and then years later really pleased to have witnessed a landmark win for both of them you know um Fitz's last one in a in a sort of international tour, a sports car race and and Del Boy's an early one for him and um yeah an, an 88 Silverstone seeing Senna win in the wet again I've never been so wet in my life I spent all day got there got the circuit in those days you get the circuit for six in the morning to get in the gate and get your spot and we were on the, the end of Hangar Straight just sat in my deck chair and got wet all day and for the first time we didn't actually stay to watch the touring car race at the end because we just had enough it was just too much, and we had to, we had to leave. But I saw we saw Senna win in the wet, and again you thought that might be something special to actually have seen Senna win in the wet. And Prost had his nightmare. You know that was there's something about the wet. I think that that um, is at the heart of what makes this sport great. Yeah, I agree. I'll I, just on that point. My dad had the opportunity to go to Brands Hatch in 1970 and didn't, mm. and his mate went instead. Mm. Well, his mate went anyway, and so he's got the recollections of seeing that that fantastic drive. My dad missed it. Wow. Foolish. Well, while we've got you, Damien, because we don't know the next time you'll be on the Autosport podcast, before we lose you, let's get your take on wet weather, modern Formula One era. It seems to be a problem that no one's got a, a magic answer to. Nobody wants to see, firstly, other vehicles on track, especially not in Japan. And modern Formula One is so safe that the drivers almost seem invincible these days. But uh, wet weather races are a, a reminder of what can go wrong, both for the drivers and you know stewards, etc. on track. But it does seem to be a problem, as Kev said at the beginning of the podcast, because, well, if you wait and wait and wait in that TV window that we've got until the track dries out, well, then it's just a... It's, an, you know, it's, a, it's a dry weather start. So what, what, what are your thoughts on, on this conundrum? Well, the first thing, uh, the snatch vehicles on circuit is... Zero tolerance for that. Unforgivable. That should never have happened in the context of what happened to poor Bianchi. But even beyond that, this day and age, that was uh, an absolute no-no. In terms of racing in the wet, it's really difficult because the uh, we, we've talked about all these heroic efforts, the Jackie Stewart's in 68, etc. Um, you kind of want to see that. You want to see you know, the Lewis Hamilton in 2008 wasn't that long ago. Uh, at the same time, if someone gets hurt doing it, the ramifications, it's a you know, global sport with an audience that's bigger than it's ever been. Uh, the world has changed, doesn't it? And it's really difficult to find find a dry line in, you know, on this one. No, it's really, no, no, no. It's yeah, really yeah. difficult. I, I, I would, I hate safety car starts. I would rather see them start um, from, from a standing start, particularly because the speeds are not that great going into turn one uh, in a wet race. The cars are so safe. I think I think they should be able to start a Grand Prix from a standing start in the wet. Um, but you, you, the point you made, Kev, about this era of cars with the big slick tyres, the you know. Um, but then again, we had the seventies. The size of the slick tyres they had in the seventies, they were they were bigger then, weren't they? I just think the amount of volume of water that's thrown up. I'm sure Pirelli have got some stats on it. Is it eighty five liters a second or something? It was something outstanding. Because like they said, oh, well, we could make the wet even better, but you just have even more spray. I don't think grip's really the issue. Obviously, they get some. One of the problems is the gap between the wet and the inter is so big, and the wets are hopeless in terms of pace. So the, the teams and drivers want to get to the inter as quickly as possible, but then they're into potentially aquaplaning. 
So yeah. that's part of the problem. But I also just think that modern F1 cars are a bit, even compared to the 70s, the cars themselves are enormous. Uh, and they're, they're, I mean, they're, that's actually they're, that's a problem on a number of levels. It's it's not great from an energy point of view because mass needs energy to take it around again to move. So having said it's all this, it's harder to overtake, right. and they kick up more spray. So having said all this, Suzuka this year they had the long delay, very boring you know, for all of us watching, waiting for them to start the race. Come on, get on with it. It's only a bit of rain. Blah blah blah. But we did still see something really special once they did start it, didn't we? That was that was a landmark Verstappen performance to to win a was it forty minute Grand Prix by nearly thirty seconds. Yeah, if that had been a full length race, yeah, well, he'd, he'd have been a minute ahead. He probably would have been into this sort of ballpark. Yeah, yeah. that I was a really so. special performance. So we we still the rain still brings out the best in our heroes. I still think uh, there's a place. You know, you can't have. Like American racing, where they you know they don't race in the wet on, on an oval. That's understandable, obviously. But yeah. you, but I'm, what I'm saying is, you can't have the races off because of because of rain. Well, if the, um, that, that's the point. If you're going to ship wet weather tires around the world to every Grand Prix, and Formula One is in an era of getting rid of tire warmers because it's going to save an electricity bill at the circuit, you know, turning them down by a few degrees. Well, if you're going to ship wet weather tyres to every event over the year, let's use the wet weather tyres. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. or, or, I, don't, or just ship into I think I think there's always going to be a point where it's too wet. And I think some of the some of the races on this list that we've just gone through, in particular 63 Belgium Grand Prix, probably shouldn't. If, if Tony Rudd and Colin Chapman were saying this is a, that we shouldn't be right. That probably that's a pretty good shouldn't sign. Shouldn't be going, <laughs> yeah, should it? Yeah. But there's a point where we've we've got this into this bit of this problem now, where I think that there, there are conditions where, in terms of uh, grip and drivers, they're happy to go for it, and it's but it's the visibility problem. And I I think that it's not just about. I mean, they're talking about putting wheel covers on the cars, which. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a comedy joke, but if it could solve the problem, they've still got massive, great underbodies that are going to throw a load of spray out. I think the, I think the, the cars and the tyres need to be smaller. Look at the look at the the wheel width of a Lotus Twenty Five. I mean, the whole car is probably half the width of a modern. I suspect you'd probably get four Lotus Twenty Fives in the in the you know the the wheelbase of a modern F One car. They're just too big. Um, but they've got to have. I guess they've got to have a lot of safety kit and all the rest of it. You know, eight hundred kilos they are. Yeah, but it's interesting seeing that the new Formula E car has got smaller. Yes. Yeah. Um, and obviously, it's got a smaller, um, smaller battery because there's more regeneration going on, so they can run with a smaller battery. So it is possible, hopefully, in the future, to make smaller cars, smaller and, racing yeah. cars, and twice as powerful. They've gone from something like 250 kilowatts to 600. Although the front motor only does regenerate, doesn't it's not a four wheel drive car, so that front motor sort of don't ignore it, but it's there to recuperate energy but yeah you can you can have a series get faster and the cars get smaller well i mean you talk to gordon murray about this and he knows a thing or two about designing cars and winning f1 cars he's like cars should be lighter for one because they're more efficient anyway they do everything better a lighter car does everything better with fuel economy performance braking all the rest of it but especially if you're moving to things with heavy batteries when we're still trying to work on how do you make batteries lighter and whatever make the rest of the car lighter and smaller I mean, obviously there are going to be limits, but this, the, you know, road cars keep getting bigger, don't they? I know that I know that we do as humans as well. That's part of the, <laughs> part of the problem, which is a different podcast still together and into an area that I'm not so uh, not so um, you know knowledgeable about. But yeah, I, I just feel like the technical rules in F1 at the moment. There's a lot of good about them. I actually quite like the ground effects cars, and they look quite funky. They've obviously solved the dirty air thing better than I think any rule set we've seen since it started to become a problem in the let's say the 80s, late 80s maybe. Um, but they are just, yeah, they are. There is a lot of good about them, but they're, they're just a bit big. But I don't know how you, you know, can you do photocopy, but at like six eighth scale or something would be quite good. You know, the, the Schumacher winning Ferraris were, depending on the rule set, I think between five and six hundred kilos. So they're they're a quarter to a third bigger. I was, yeah, I was doing some research on uh, my my Benetton book uh, the other day, and, and we were talking about ninety five um, when they brought in a new minimum weight limit of I think it was 595 kilos including the driver and that was the year that Michael turned up at the first weigh-in at the start of the year um, and he was much he was like eight kilograms heavier than he had been the year before and basically he'd drunk a load of water and there was also talk about him carrying a, a heavy helmet into the way and the drivers only weighed once at the start of the year and that weight was then taken across the year so he was basically you know upping his weight 
fake in a fake way um and but you know you just thought i as i was researching this i thought Gee, how much heavier are the f1 cars now there's progress for you you know it well it, the, the the w125 Merc pre pre-war uh was built to the 750 kilogram weight formula hmm. and that's uh that was a 5.6 liter supercharged thing and they're heavier than that. I often like to think what Colin Chapman would think about things today when I when something crops up like this, you know, um, you know the man who a- added lightness to everything. It, it, you know, he'd be. I asked John Hogan once, "What would Colin Chapman think about modern Formula One?" And he said, oh, "I'd be up to his elbows in it. He'd love it." Oh, really? Yeah, which was quite interesting Crazy. to hear. But he he would certainly, but he would surely hate all this this weight. That yeah. would be halos was, made of paper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. So uh, we'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us uh, on the podcast once again today. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to chip in with any of the topics we've talked about, you can do that. The email address is podcast at autosports.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.